Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Inspiration Space for my 100th episode. That is, to me, something that I am really, really, really proud of. Um, the person that I've done this 100th episode deserves to be on it more than any other person on this planet. My mother uh, is somebody who I adore. I cherish our relationship. Uh, she is a wonderful 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 human being um she has been the backbone to my whole family and my family everybody knows is the most important thing to me alongside my friends so guys listening to this one uh she's she's real real character um and yeah there's nobody on this planet that i want to thank more for my life than her so guys enjoy this one it's finally lovely to have you on this podcast for my 100th episode. I always said that you were going to be the 100th. Um, very rarely do we ever ask you questions. I was thinking about this when I was asking my que- when I was writing my questions down. You're always the one who listens to us and listens to all our problems and keeps us all sane and keeps us all uh, level-headed throughout our lives. So it's, it's really nice that I actually have you on here to talk about yourself um, we have an amazing sort of family spirit and connection. We're, we're extremely lucky, me and LJ. We, we know that, um, how lucky we are. And you're really the glue that's held us all together, like I just said. So um, it's a real, real pleasure. I wanted to start, Mama, Thank uh, you. <laughs> you to talk a little bit about your childhood. Because um, uh, your family, as far as everything I'm aware, was, was a little bit like we are in terms of the closeness. So yeah, maybe just touch on a little bit of your upbringing, your, your about, we'll get, we'll talk a little bit about um, my, our grandfather and, and, and nanny later on, but maybe just talk a little bit to us about your, your childhood, Mama. Yes, I mean, I was very lucky. I had a, I had a lovely childhood. I was, I was born in Stanmore in Middlesex and I had a, a lovely house I grew up in and I had a lovely garden to play in and it was it was a very happy childhood um and two you know adoring parents um lots of friends a younger sister so it was um th- there was no sort of threat or anything in my childhood i had a very serene happy childhood i didn't know there was anything else out there i mean i was brought up and i enjoyed and appreciated what i have but in latter years i appreciated it because i didn't as i say know anything else was out there but i was i was a happy child and i mean i, I never quite, quite I never... tomboyish but um but happy quite quite tomboyish yeah yeah i was always you know charging around doing things and you know and much much like you are now a bit like i am now yes <laughs> i mean I, ne- I, I never obviously got to meet um our grandfather as he as he passed away it's long 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 before uh, uh, I, 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 I was born mm. i wish you had he'd have loved you my yeah, yeah what what, what kind of a man what kind of a man was he and i mean what were some of the characteristics um he had that you think kind of stayed with you and yeah just talk about him a little bit because you always kind of mention him but obviously I do. yeah he was he was great character he was um <clears throat> his name was hayden mm. but nobody called him hayden because his surname was higginson and everyone called him higgy so that was his name uh he was higgy to everyone and he uh was very successful business really um quite um yeah, I say gambling, he loved his gambling anyway. So I say a bit of a chance. It was a bit of a chance for a lot of things, but I think that happened more before I was born. Um, but he was really, you know, f- full. He was great in any party atmosphere. He loved giving parties. And he um, w- w- was successful because he had so much energy and drive. He loved his sport. He liked his ladies, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> my mum just calmed him down a little bit by the time, but maybe not for long. Um, and he did have children late in life. So in fact, he was, I think about, I think it was about 50, no, 49, 48 before I was born. And then my sister later, you know, four years later than that. So he had children quite late in life. And I remember my mother always said, he said to her, he must, you must give me daughters, Eileen. You can't, you must give me a daughter. Don't give me a son because I'm too old to do all the things with a son that I'd like to have done, you know, play sport and all that sort of thing. So um, my mother proudly presented him with two daughters, which he was very happy with and absolutely doted on us. Uh, He was very protective of us in, I say the way he was protective of us, if we fell over at all and cut ourselves or, or, or knocked ourselves, he used to get hysterical. He used to blame my mother for it all. You should have not let her go out there. You should have not. Like we were Dresden, China. You know, 
but Jane and I were not Dresden China. I mean, there was a lovely story where Jane cut her, Jane cut her leg, and every night when Dad, Daddy got home, she was dressed and ready for bed in her long nightdress. This is my sister Jane. And uh, he kept saying, well, I can't believe you'll be so good these days. You're ready for bed long before your mother tells you. Of course, the reason was we were trying to hide the dirty great cut on her knee. <laughs> you've got hysterical. <laughs> so he was that sort of muck dad to us. But, um, but he do you was think you, Do you think it would have been different if he'd had a boy? Do you reckon he would have been a... He did. Well, I'm sure he would. I, he'd have been very... I mean, if, if he'd have been around when you were young, I mean... He would have been very old by then, but he would have come to all the, the sports things with me to see you because he just loved all that performance. But he'd have been very proud of you because you're so sporty. You know, he loved little girls. He would have absolutely enjoyed every second of that. Mm. So, um, no, he was he was very... Um, he, he would have been fine with a boy, but he was just so excited to be a dad and at that age, I think. It's really weird. I never really... I never really asked you too many questions about him. Not that I think that you've kind of ever been that sensitive about talking about it, obviously with what happened, because obviously he, he, he died um, when you were quite young. But yeah. I don't know, it's just weird. I never really, I never really pushed you to talk about him over the years because you kind of, after he passed away, you kind of took on the, the protector role of yeah. that family. That's kind, not that you've ever said that, but that's kind of how it's kind of felt. Like whenever I speak to Jay, whenever I speak, spoke to Nanny, and we'll get on to her in, in a minute. You know, hopefully not getting too emotional because every any time I do talk about Nanny, I do kind of get a little bit teary. But you know, she like you, you, you did kind of from when he did pass away, and obviously don't need to if you don't want to talk about that too much. Don't don't worry about it. But you kind of did take on that protector role. Um, and it kind of, I think, has, has stayed with you for the remainder of your life. And I, I'm just interested to hear a little bit about what the, that time was like throughout and, and the, the kind of mindset shift you took on to become that protector role of the family almost at that point. Well, it was all in rather strange circumstances because, yes, he was always the governor and always, you know, when he was with daddy and, you know, daddy had you know, the sort of the autonomy in the family because of who he was. And then he, I, I was at that time at stage school towards the end and I was at stage school and I went up for a, quite a big film role. Um, and my father had been very ill. And in fact, actually, when I went up for this big film role, he'd actually been so ill that they didn't think he was going to make it through. But being Higgy, he did make it through. Um, and he had something that they couldn't cure they had to cure with drugs so he was ill he was actually ill in the end for four years but it was four years they didn't really think he'd, he'd make I mean so that's you know he was quite a robust personality and through all that I had this whole other scenario was opening up for me and you know, I was screen tested for this uh, film role and I got it and it was a you know a big thing about I was very young and I the film was a little bit risque and, and what I was, was the film? Or which it was, one was called this? a film called Baby Love. Yeah. And and these and the the catchphrase was, you know, she's old enough to make it, but not old enough to see it, which is quite clever when they advertise it. Like it was because I was fifteen when I made this movie, and when I got it, as I say, my dad was just just coming back from his first big bout of illness, and it, so he was got was home by the time it all started to kick off. And I always swear that it was getting this film role. I actually think got him through that next three or four years. Mm. And, and it sounds sort of like I'm boasting about it, but I'm not. But he was so proud of what I'd done. He was so proud of me. He was so proud of both his girls. I mean, if I won a swimming competition in my primary school and, you know, I've got a swimming cup and, oh, it was up on the mantelpiece. Mm. So he was so, so proud. And I think that that really spurred mm. him through. And there was a lot of action going on around this film. It was made in the beginning of March to, um uh, 1968 and then it was put on hold because the producer Michael Klinger was trying to sell it so everything was on hold and he was going to sell it to a big thing which indeed he did in the end um, and it, it was advertised and we had a big premiere in London and and all these little facts I do remember the premiere in London when we finally got this film out it was a terrific idea they used my birth certificate as the invitation to the premiere and I had to go up to Somerset House my mum came with me to collect this birth certificate and George Skinner the publicist got this idea and what they did they did the whole birth certificate copied it out and the invitation 
to the premieres on the back of the birth certificates, come to see baby love. And it was, it was a brilliant idea. And they took over the Metropole Victoria in London for the party. And it was a huge party. And I was, and it was, they made it my 16th birthday, which of course it wasn't because it was in March and my birthday was in January, but they made it out my, it was my 16th birthday party. And I was coming out of the cake and I was all dressed in white with chiffon <laughs> top. I mean, the whole thing when I look back on it now was ludicrous. Mm. But it was a big publicity machine behind it. And I remember when the tickets came up for the premiere, Michael Klinger got a very soft spot for my dad and they got on very well. He let my dad have so many tickets, so half of it was filled with Vauxhall Motors because it was all, <laughs> all my father's compatriots, but he was just so proud and so thrilled. And then afterwards, mm. I went off to America to publicise it, where the film wasn't such a big hit. But then afterwards, I went all abroad and all over England. So I was in the newspaper a lot in those days. In fact, you could very rarely pick up a newspaper without me on some page somewhere, which was all fantastic. And I took it all in my stride. But for my father, I am absolutely convinced that that was got, what kept got him going. Mm. Um, and indeed, it did keep him going until sadly in 19... And he had a little few blips, but still came back. Um, you know, so he was retiring anyway. He was because he was due 65 to retire, and he was going to. Um, they bought a house down at the coast, uh, where I'm sitting now, uh, down at the south coast. And, and very sadly, this whole illness came back at the beginning of 1972. And it always, the first time he was ill, and the last time he was ill, always it occurred around the time of my birthday, which is the 19th of January. And both those times, my poor mother had to, you know, she didn't want to tell us what was going on. She wanted to try and keep away from us as much as she could. But this, the last time, 1972, he went into hospital on the 17th of January, it must have been. Uh, and he wasn't in hospital 24 hours before he died. And through all this illness, I, in a way, had buried my head in the sand because I'd I knew he wasn't well, but I would never, ever admit that he was that ill. And when he died, I remember the night he died, I, he was in the hospital and I'd gone up there to see him. He was in uh, Milford Hills, Northern, uh, Northern, yeah, Northern Hills Hospital. And I'd actually got, got in to see him. And as I came out of the building, an ex-boyfriend of mine I hadn't seen for ages was there. And he said, oh, hi, Linda. And I told him all about my dad. And he said, well, come and have a drink. And I went up and had a drink at the local pub. And, and then went home. I was 18 this time, and so I was driving. And um, I remember in the middle of the night, I, the phone rang and I heard my mother go, oh no, oh no. And that was when she was told that he had died. And it's the day before my 19th birthday. So, I never actually knew that that yeah, was the yeah, day before. Yeah, he died but... the day before my 19th birthday. So for me, apart from the fact that I, I was totally, I, I didn't react, I didn't react, was I was that, but, it, it was such a shock mm. that I didn't really take it in. And the, the, the company he'd been working for, you know, the, the, he was such a character, even though he's retired and they all loved Higgy and everything. And they, they had this big funeral for him. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people, respected and admired by a lot of people. Um, and I was all the way through up into the funeral and the house had been sold because we were moving to the South Coast and I'd managed to put all that on hold. And it, 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 it was... Or I don't quite know when I think back on how I did all that, but I seemed to sort of cope with it. And my mum was coping with quite a few things, but obviously she was very emotional and they, they did take over the funeral arrangements, his, his firm. But I do remember on the day of his funeral, I was standing there and just before the coffin passed through the, the cremation, I just passed out completely. I absolutely really? went spark out. And I sort of vaguely remember being lifted up over it. And I think what had happened was I'd built everything up so much inside mm. that it had to come out somewhere. And, and that was it. And it was, it was a bit dramatic. It was about like, like the scene of a film, it must have been. Because there, when the coffin went through and I went to the ground. Wow, My poor mother. I, I think she nearly, yeah, God knows how she felt. So mm. everything to do with my dad was very... Um, you know, it, it all happened at a, at a time and it all came into sort of into a head there and then we had to go through with the house going and move into the new house and my mum being moved to a totally new place and she had an elderly relative who had had to move with her and she had so she was she was a bit stuck really mm. and my sister and I commuted up and down quite a lot but we had friends who stayed with in London so the whole episode put our whole family you know for me such a stable and everything fine it's sort of into another 
stratosphere really, sure. which it continued for some time. And I think it probably did take its toll on me, but you, you sort of get on with it when it's happening. And I was still quite young, um, but I, I do, and my sister was only 15 when he died, so it was very young to lose yeah. a dad, and, and from, from such a solid family, you know? Yeah, of course. So we did go through quite a few years of upheaval, but we managed to stick together. And, and you know, and thank God for my mum. She was fantastic, my mum. She was such a character. Oh, and when God. we moved to London, and I'm talking about oh, two or three, we managed to, after the first year in uh, lovely Aldwick, we were trying to get my mum back. We found a house where everything because I thought she sucked down there. The house fell through. And the little house down here, right on the seafront, it was a big house, then we had a big house, we moved it, sort of little one, and she couldn't afford to keep it going. But all I know is everybody loved this little pitch, as you well know, because you love it yourself. Mm. And, and it sort of kept my mum going, because she used to have housefuls of youngsters every weekend. You know, I remember one Sunday she cooked four roast meat, four roasts. I don't know how she managed to get four in the oven, but everybody wanted a different roast. And there were always people coming down and guys and girls and everyone because they love the garden and they love the, the place so Bogner became a sort of a little um beacon really sure. um and, I mean, and she was fantastic but but also because she was such a character she used to come up and stay with us in london and let me tell you my mum was a character she could, <laughs> she could drink most people under the table bless her she was such a she had such staying power yeah and nanny nanny really like i was thinking about this when i was doing these sort of like questions and thinking about what we we're going to speak about I mean, Nanny actually really, like, if I think about it, Nanny was kind of like my childhood, like, and my knowledge is like, I mean, I don't think of many great family moments where she really wasn't, she wasn't there. Oh, yeah. Um, and she just was like such an unbelievable character. And, yeah. you know, thankfully, you're, you're sort of turning into her in many ways, which is, <laughs> um, if, if you haven't already. But like, I always remember dad saying that the moment he met Nanny was the moment he knew he was going to marry. And it's kind of always stuck with me forever. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I love. Yeah, I could see what she was going to turn into, and you know what? That wasn't bad, so I stick yeah, well, with it. <laughs> I love that. Um, what were some of Nanny's sort of best characteristics? Um, and like, what do you think you learned from her in a sort of maternal sense or, or, or a motherly sense that you kind of, yeah, the, the, the way you're as a mother, what, what do you think you kind of took from her? Well, do you know something? It's you, you instinctively take it rather than you know, rather than, um, you know, do it by, you know, you, you, it's an instinct, let's just say, it's an instinct. Let me just close the door, because the lawnmower, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Sorry, the person next door has decided to mow their lawn. No, it, it's, it's an instinct, and all I know is both my sister and I have it. Um, Jane probably even more than I do. She, she should have had about six children. She actually only had one, but she should have. Had. But it's a total instinct, and you, you learn it at your mother's breast, as they say, because that's the way she was. Um, mm. And I know very much my my mother-in-law, who was a stoic woman. She was a terrific character as well. But you two never honed towards Sybil the way you did my mum, mm. because it was a natural motherly instinct that you both that you both you know were drawn in with were drawn into because she just she just had that that way about War, her. warmness yes that way about her. i mean i always remember and this was in later years but i just remember so many things with you and nanny but particularly she used to always force in oh she had to get her shoes on and she used to get so oh she used to sit down do you remember and put the, uh, her shoes on to go out there to laces and all this sort of thing and she's she, you were trying to help her one day, and then she fell back on the stairs, and you fell back with her because you were trying to help her. <laughs> just on the stairs. And I remember you both sitting there laughing yourself <laughs> stupid. I was the stupidest little thing, but it was, mm. it, it was just the way she was. And, and you, and you, she, and you, because she spoiled you rotten. I mean, you know, because she'd, she'd been an only child, and she'd never had any siblings but she'd never been anywhere near little boys so suddenly when this little boy arrived in the household of course you were the apple of her eye <laughs> mm. i always remember she um she, whenever i whenever i used to go out with my friends when i was like what 15 16 she'd always always give me 20 quid and i remember i, I never bloody knew that always Literally. always always and also she she because obviously nanny's hearing was terrible like it was just a running joke with my friends that we used to just speak about what we'd done the night before in front of her and she wouldn't she wouldn't hear it. I always remember I always remember this one time we had a particularly raucous night 
and uh, she, she, as I was going out, she goes, Hayden, like with the 20 pounds. And, and I, I went over to her and, and she, as I was about to say, I went, thank you, Nanny. And she gave it. And, and as I was trying to just take it out of her hand, she kind of pulled back and she goes, had fun last night, did you? <laughs> and after and all, and, and all the after all those years, I thought she'd never been able to to hear any of the stuff we got up to. She just she I can imagine she just took it in her stride and and, and just loved hearing all, all the antics. And at that moment, she just she took it upon herself to let me know that she'd actually been listening and hearing and absorbing all the, throughout all the years of the, all, all the, stuff. the time. Yeah. No, she was she was amazing. She was funny, and she, as I say, when I was younger, you know, after Daddy died, when she used to come upstairs in St John's Wood, and we used to have a load of. I used to live with Robin Asquith, and um, before we went out, boyfriend girl, we shared a flat together, a basement flat in St John's Wood, right opposite a fantastic little pub called the Heroes of Alma. And down the end of the road was the EMI recording studios, a famous where the Beatles, Apple, you know, um, the Apple used to do right by Abbey Road there. And um, we used to have some, because everyone used to come down to the studios and drink at the pub. So we, and our little basement flat was right opposite. So mm. the amount of people used to have coming in after work, when the pubs used to close there, and then they used to come in, carry on drinking, and then when the pub opened again, they all used to go back across the pub. I mean, God only knows how I many. But Nanny used to be in the middle of all that. And absolutely, I, I have to tell this is a funny story, and I've got to tell you that. This was in the uh, mid-70s. And um, I, I bought her little blue mini off her. She had a little blue mini and I bought it off her when I was doing traveling up and down and touring in Coventry and all these things. And um, it, was, it was before the really heavy duty parking days. They're just beginning to bring in all these you know, parking meets and there were obviously wardens walking around. And, and I remember I was in the bath one day and, and somebody said, oh, for God's sake, there's a traffic warden. And somebody shouted through the window, there's a warden, there's a warden around. So I thought, oh my God. Anyway, it was the most time I said to mommy, oh my God, can you just move the car for me? Unbeknownst to me, she'd still got her dressing gown on, so she goes, got the key there, and this is, oh, I'm talking about mid-70s, everything is locked, you know. So she goes up into little blue mini, straight outside the Royal Yellow Line, she gets into the mini in her dressing gown, whatever, with the key, of course, drives off, but of course doesn't know where she's gone. Oh, I'm totally lost. And then, like, where's she gone? I, I think, I can't remember if she ended up Wait, had she got money when she phoned from a I can't remember what it was. We suddenly saw oh, you saw it, this little blue car tootling across the road down there. We running after us and that didn't come out. She had no where she was going. But that is just typical of my She's been around for hours. Look, didn't know where she was. Of course she didn't know where she I was. Hate, I hate to say it, Mummy. It's exactly the sort of thing you would do as well. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, no, she she was an exceptional character right yeah. up until the end as well. Like, I remember, her, I remember the classic one was when she fell asleep talking to my other gra grandma, who, who obviously uh, we loved as well. Uh, she she was very, um, she always would love to tell everyone how she was feeling so terrible. Uh, and Nanny, Nanny was the polar opposite. You never hear, which is much like you as well, which we'll talk about in a bit, but like, you ne very rarely, you'll listen to us bang on about how shit we're feeling and how down we are and how up we are and all this kind of stuff, but you very rarely talk to us about how you're feeling. And it's a bit similar with Nanny. Yeah. Um, you, so absorb, was, you absorb from other people, you see, you take in all theirs. So in the end, you, think you yeah. put yourself on back and you think, oh, it doesn't matter about you. Not, I know exactly yeah. how she felt, because I do feel yeah. the same. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, she fell asleep listening to Nanny, didn't she? What was it? Or no, what was well, just before Christmas? They only met about two or three times a year, and she came up, and there was Sybil came in, looking smart and everything. And Nanny had sitting down in the chair, and Sybil in the other chair. And I both gave them both a cup of tea, and Nanny's sitting there with the tea on her arm. And I, I don't even know if she asked how Sybil was, she wouldn't dream of doing that because God, she, and Sybil started. Like, <laughs> well, I went to see the doctor, and I went that thing, and I went, and suddenly I'm in the kitchen, I'm looking through the hatch, and I suddenly saw this tea going everywhere. And I went, Mommy, Mommy, what are you doing? And I dashed into the room, and she'd spilled tea down her, and she spilled tea on the, the chair she was sitting in. So I pulled her into the kitchen. I said, Oh, come here, let me wipe you down, Lily. And I said, What are you doing? What are you doing? And she just looked at me, and she went, oh, I'm sorry. I was so bored, I just fell asleep. She just, was, she <laughs> fell asleep listening to Sybil. <laughs> well, I was in hysterics. I just laughed so much. I didn't care about the chair because I knew exactly what she did. That was an absolute classic. 
Yeah, that was nice. Oh, bless her. It was almost like an end of a end of a chapter for me when she when she. Yeah, well, I have to say, you and LJ were absolutely magnificent at her funeral because I, I may even remember we'd be buried, and I remember the man, the, you know, the, the burial, uh, the funeral director, rather, who I'd known for donkey's years from before when we first lived down here. And he actually, at the end of the thing, and he said, I'm really, I've been to so many funerals, I've never been so touched by, you know, Laura Jane read that beautiful poem and you, you, your little anecdote you said about her, which was, was lovely and tinged with all sorts of humour. And it was really, really lovely. And the only person who missed out on that, sadly, was the person you did it for, because she'd have, she'd have loved to have seen it. Yeah, yeah. No, it was absolutely. a very fitting end of such a lovely lady, bless her. But she lived yeah. to 93, so she was we had her as long lady. as we could. We did, we did. So, I mean, stepping away from that for for a second and just talk, getting back into this, we ne I never really get to, I never got to see your career. Um, obviously, you you touched on it a bit earlier with baby love and the stuff you did in your in your child and stuff. But you you were in show business at such an incredible time, like the sixties and seventies and and eighties. But specifically, the sixties and seventies is something that's really intrigued me and there were so many real characters like when i spoke to dad about it and whenever we have discussions about show business in the house like i love hearing stories about all the characters that were around then like real characters there was nothing fake about them really they were just who, yeah. they, were who they were well there, there was no political bloody correctness for a start yeah all right let's just hold back on that for a second and don't get um, me on that <laughs> <laughs> um Talk us through, um, firstly, you know, why you kind of wanted to be an actress and how you kind of got into it and, um, you know, some of the characters that you came across in that time and, and any sort of anything that really stood out um, throughout those sort of 60s and 70s, whether it be, you know, on the TV series sets or on the, on the stage or in films or, or anything like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I sort of, I started off by, have really started, was my mother decided I wasn't speaking well enough and sent me to elocution lessons of all things. Really? I, I came across, a, I was taught by a very nice, quite formidable lady called Miss Atkinson. And Miss Atkinson um, taught me um, elocution and I used to go in for a lot of the Watford um, speech and drama festivals. So mm. um, I went in for verse speaking and uh, I did some poetry. Um, and I won several medals during the years. I won a bronze, I won a silver, I won a gold. And then I did a duologue with my best friend, Alison Wonderland, I played. I think we got silver for that. So I was winning quite a few medals, which was, again, something my father, of course, was absolutely thrilled about. It was all. So I got quite into that because I used to go up on stage and do that. So that was my sort of focus of the year, just for doing these festivals. I think one year I went for two or three things. Um, and won a couple of them, which was terrific. So I'd always sort of had that at the back of my mind. And then I guess it was the usual thing, like, you know, watch television. I remember I used to love Roger Moore playing Simon Templar in The Saint, which was on at 7.30 every Sunday night. And I used to watch it. I mean, I was about eight or nine, whatever it was, and all these lovely female roles and everything. I thought, oh, I'd love to do that, love to do that. And, and basically what happened was that my father um, had a man working for him who was called, I think, um, Gerald, I think his name was Gerald Maxim, who was the brother of Ernest Maxim, who is the very famous uh, television director. He directed most of the Morecambe and Wise shows. Um, and he worked at the BBC. Um, and he was a lovely man. Um, and Gerald said to um, my father, you know, Ernest Maxim's my brother, and he has a lot of uh, tickets to go and see the Kathy Kirby show, which was, she was quite a famous singer in the 60s. Um, and very good she was too. And my mum and dad and I went to see the Kathy Kirby show as part of the audience. And Ernest actually put the camera on me, introduced me as this young lady. I don't quite know how all that happened when it did, but it did. And he um, he then said, well, you know, he talked to my father and he said, well, she's really earnest about all this. Why don't we see if we can get her into a stage school? Um, so they started making inroads and I was introduced and went to meet Ada Foster, this famous, very famous Ada Foster Drama School of, of its day. It started and their, their real claim to fame was an actress called Jean Simmons, who started the Ada Foster Drama School uh, and, and she was the one who made it famous. And they had, I mean, so many people there. Barbara Windsor was there. Um, I think Elaine Page was there. So many people went to this drama school. So um, they got me an interview and I got into the school. I was only 11 
My mother wasn't too thrilled about it because she didn't think I should leave proper school. But they did have education there, but I have to say stage school was the main thing. So I started there when I was, yeah, when I was 11. Um, and I did quite a few, with this school, you could go off and have auditions. And um, so you could be out of school if you did something. And one of the first things I got, and Ernest Maxim was behind it as, as well. Um, in fact, I think I was 12 when I went to school, not 11. And I got this thing, there was a, a, a character, a famous comedian called Dick Emery. And he, Dick Emery did a series on television. And in the middle of the series, they wanted to put a little skit in called The Ludd Family. And The Ludd Family consisted of um, Dick Emery playing all the parts. He played the grandmother, the brother, the father. The, this. the only person who wasn't played by Dick was the mother, who was a lovely actress called Anne Lancaster, and the daughter. And the daughter was a character called Myrtle Ludd. And Myrtle Love was very much of the time she had the boof on the hairdo and the great big chunky earrings and makeup and the dusty Springfield makeup and skirts up to her, what have you. Anyway, I managed to get the part of this Myrtle Ludd. So there I am at the age of 13 making this series and they were filmed it all. They filmed it at Ealing Studios. Now, this is a phenomenal piece of, I said, piece of luck, but, you know, the fact that I was filming at the age of 13, and we, it was quite a few weeks of filming. So I was introduced to filming at a very early age. Um, and Dick Emery was a great character. Another one who got on well with my dad. In fact, I think he bought two or three cars from my dad over the years. And, uh, and he was meant to be a bit of a monkey with all the young ladies. And I had a chaperone from Ada Foster. I can see her now, what was her name? God, a bunch of formidable woman, rather mild. And the chaperone you used to follow me everywhere and make sure that I was safe. And of course, Dick Emery did all these sort of things to try and get rid of the chaperone. Only as a joke thing, he wasn't, he wasn't trying anything on, but it just became a running gag how he would get rid of the chaperone, because I hated having a chaperone, so I was all for it. But I used to, and I remember he introduced me to Peter Sellers. Only introduced me, because Peter Sellers was very big at the time, he was at Ealing Studios. Um, filming something, and I think it Lord Snowden was there, and I Dick knew them all. So, and there was this little dolly bird, you know, and, and I actually had a fantastic time, some lovely scenes in it. I, I loved every second of it, and there I was with these extremely experienced and you know, professional people. Um, so I'd done quite a bit of filming, and then they decided to, while we were still filming the show came out it was one of those recorded you know um comedy shows of a set audience and then they put the little bit of film in the middle that we filmed so the audience were looking at it and they did one week because it was all pre-recorded it didn't come out till a few weeks later and by the second week they decided that this little film in the middle of the show wasn't working and they decided to scrap the whole thing and i was absolutely heartbroken as you can imagine because they just weren't going to show it but at least I had got probably about oh, quite a few weeks of filming. I could have been about two months of filming out of it. So at least I had benefited from that. Mm. But you can imagine my absolute, you know, when suddenly they decided and I wasn't going to be on the television at all. So that, that character never, ever hit the screens. Okay. Even though, I mean, it was a fantastic, when you think of the name Myrtle Ludd. I would, mm. <laughs> um, and I know my dad was upset and everything. Anyway. Hey ho, that was show business. I go back to school and everything. But very soon after that, and I was always doing something. I used to do. They used to do catwalk fashion shows and used to hire the girls from from Ada Foster. And I was always out modelling assignments or interviews. Or um, so I was one of the ones at stage school who was always being auditioned for things. That wasn't always the case in those stage schools. You know, several kids were there because their parents wanted them there. Didn't have any clue or really wanted to do it at all. At least I wanted to do it. And after that, reasonably soon after that, I was lucky enough to get Baby Love. I was up to two films at the time, actually. I was up to Baby Love and I was up to a film with um, Anthony Newley. Can Hieronymus Merkin ever uh, forget Mercy Hunt from Find True Happiness? It was the most peculiar title for a film. Um, and Anthony Newley wrote it and directed it. And he was a terrific character, Tony Newley. And I was up for that main part in that as well so i was up, had two screen tests i was up for at the same time and funny enough i wanted the tony newley film because i thought he was so lovely he was such a character um but i didn't get that but i did get baby love and in hindsight of course the better one to get was baby love 
Yeah. Uh, and that's how that happened. So it all happened for me very, very, everything happened on the age of 15. Yeah. So it was a huge, huge leap suddenly into this business. And, and I was very lucky. Ernest Maxim had a, a big hand to play in that. I think he was a lovely man and, and guided me through it. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was due to him really that I even got me to stage school. So I have a lot, had a lot to thank him for. Mm -hmm. and then and then obviously you, you spent years on the on the scene and doing loads of um bits and bobs and um theater shows which of course led you to meeting our fantastic father Absolutely. Um, and yeah i mean I, i've never really to be honest again like it's actually shocked me how little i know about and i mean i know the vague story of how you met but you know did you have much interaction with daddy like well i did uh, i mean like, i started i started the theater yeah yeah, I started the theatre because I was doing all these films, and, you know, and, and they were, some of them, I mean, a lot of them I was being offered were a bit risque, and, and, and Michael Klinger, the producer, didn't want me to go back and do normal things. He wanted to promote me in Baby Love, and then we had a fallout with Ada Foster, and so there were quite a few tra traumatic years, even before my dad died, actually, because I was, I didn't, I was being torn in two different directions. But I, I had a wonderful agent who, who, who called Peter Crouch, who suddenly said to me, I changed Peter, Crouch, agents. Peter Crouch. Peter Crouch, yes. Not um, not not the footballer, actually, no. Yeah. He was a wonderful agent. And I'd, I'd left Ada Foster and I and then went with Dennis Sellinger for a bit. He was this very big agent, I think. But things that that didn't really work for me because there were big things in America. I think just didn't work out that way. But Peter Crouch, I then went to Peter Crouch. Um, I can't quite remember how I found that. And he said to me, look, Linda, he said, let's put your career in a different, uh, different direction now. He said, all these films, well, it's all fine, but you need some stage work. If you don't do stage work, you won't back it up. And Peter Crouch sent me off and I went to Coventry, the Belgrade and Coventry, Belgrade Theatre. And I did a lot of stage work um, over the years and tours and all those things. And I then ended up in the West End in a play with Leslie Phillips called Sextet, which was at the Criterion Theatre, where I met several people over the years I mean Leslie Phillips uh, I was very fond of and he was terrific and he taught me a lot about my stage craft actually and how to use my voice properly and everything because you know you can be taught what you want at school but until you get on the stage in front of an audience it, it doesn't happen mm. you, you've got to go from there yeah. and I was in this play with a lovely actress called Wanda Ventham who I adored and on the top deck of the boat where I was um, playing this young girl who goes up to the top deck where there's one of the people in, in the passengers in the boat and I had to take a bikini top off so I had to be topless in this only for a few minutes in this stage play not a lot of actresses would do it but I did and next to me who is the person who said, well, was Julian Fellows who is quite a famous person as you know and so Julian was on stage with me for 11 months yeah I'm mean, sorry the bloody door's gone hasn't it one second oh. so sorry oh. Me. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, but the post ladies are sorry. Yeah, something for Rob. Carry on. Um, so I was on stage with Julian Fellows um, and did that with Leslie. And I, I then over the years did quite a, quite a lot of theatre, um, which was great, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then I have I was doing um, the confessions movies, and and I heard from one of the ladies who was there, and she talked about this man called Paul Elliott. And I said, Oh yes, yes, he's a theatre producer. And I heard all about Paul Elliott, and I, I then met him at a party in the distance. He was a party of Linda Bellings, and I saw him, and I thought, oh, that's that, that's that producer that, that particular actress told me about. Oh, good-looking good man, lovely silver-grey hair, or grey hair even then. Mm -hmm. um, and then, quite a few years later, I was uh, with um, Barry Burnett then, and he suggested me for a play they were going to do called Underground with Raymond Burr. And it was, a, it was a play about an underground carriage um, full of um, people who were uh, all these characters. And I was one of the characters and it played a young dancer. It, it was quite a it was funny old play, really. There were some good people in it. And I was picked to play the young girl. And it was going on tour. And then it was going to Canada, Toronto, for a six, seven week season. And anyway, I, I got the, the part. And a lovely actor who I'd worked with over the years called Simon Williams, I worked with him in a lovely film I did called Blood of Satan's Claw. And he was a director and he suggested me for the part. And then I, I got the part. I didn't have an audition for an ending. And there I was with these amazing characters. A lovely actor called Gerald Flood. Alfred Marks was the first time I worked with Alfred. He's a real character. Um, Elspeth March was also an amazing lady. Big, big lady, silver grey hair. And she was the mother of the 
uh, agent um, with Barry Burnett, um, Lindsay Granger. And she was quite a, um, an amazing lady because she'd been married to an actor called Stuart Granger, Elspeth March, and she, Stuart Granger, funnily enough, had left his wife, Jean Simmons. It all ties up in a great big ball there somewhere. But I did this film underground, um, and, and it, it was one of the funnest things I've ever done because there were so many characters. Peter Wingard was in it, who I absolutely adored. He always used to rub everyone up the wrong way, but he was, he was a real character. And Raymond Burr, who was very, very famous. He was the um, man who played Perry Mason and Ironside. And when my dad had been alive, one of his favorite television programs was Perry Mason, big American star. And then this series called Ironside, where he is a big detective and he's in a wheelchair. And he's in a wheelchair for the whole And it was one of the most popular series that came to England for years. And so Raymond Burr is sitting in this railway carriage and he spends the entire play sitting in this railway carriage. And people are talking around him and doing the thing. And at the end of the play, when they find the villain, and the villain is Peter Wingard, and they, they, I think they shoot him and, he, and Raymond Burr gets up out of the seat and walks towards him. When he gets up, the whole audience broke into a round of applause because all they remember was this man sitting in a wheelchair. <laughs> and the whole of this bloody play was done for this because Sir Raymond Burr was so popular. It was awful. But the best thing that came out of it, of course, was your father. <laughs> I met him. I met him. I was working for him. And things sort of took a turn of events when we were in Canada. Um, and uh, it sort of all went from there through a few rocky roads, as you can imagine, because I was, mm. I just bought a house with Robin and Paul was married at the time as well. So it was a little bit um, of a rocky road. But four years down the line, um, we, we lived together for four years before we married. We, um, we did move in together and we were four years before we married. But it, what, was it, it was, what was it like? What was it like working for, for, for dad? Well, I mean, the might first have been, one might have been slightly different for you than for everyone else, but... but like, to fight different from what? It might be slightly, been slightly different for you than it would be for everyone else, but what, like, what was it like having him as, well, because it, it was on very, that side of the... Well, yeah. it, quite honest with you, it was very, very... We had to keep everything extremely quiet, and, and we did keep everything very quiet as much as we could, but of course it all started really at the beginning, and then we when actually we were in Aberdeen first, then we went to Toronto. Um, and I was in Toronto for, yes, six, six weeks, um, yeah. seven weeks. And this is another lovely thing with my mum, bless our good man, nanny again. I used to write her cards and, and the things from Toronto. And I hadn't even told my mother, that's how, because, you know, Paul was married and I say just literally bought a house um, with Robin. So I don't think my mum needed to know there was anything untoward going on. In fact, Robin came out mm. to see me in Toronto. Um, but she knew, she knew from my card. She said, I, I knew there was something going on. She said, I absolutely knew when I got back because it all came to a bit of a head and we got, we got a bit hysterical and then Paul and I decided that was it. We must call it a day and all the rest of it, uh, which actually didn't work out, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I, I, your father was amazing because he did say to me, the writer, the only one who did actually know what was going on was the writer of Underground. There's a lovely man called Michael Sloan, who dove Underground for many years previously. And when they rehashed it and I was in it, he, he, he knew that Paul and I were having an affair. Um, and I remember when we got back to England and, um, and we, we put it in the Prince of Wales, Daddy put it in the Prince of Wales Theatre in London. And of course it was, it, it didn't, oh no, we, we did a tour first. We did a tour first, that's right. And Brighton, all some big, big dates, Norwich and everywhere. Um, and it, it was getting a little bit, you know, sticky then, and we decided to call it a day, but then we came back together, and Michael Sloan knew, and he and Daddy went out for a drink, and I think Daddy got really quite drunk, because he was, he was, you know, upset about the whole situation, and I remember when he rung me up, and I said to him, he said, you know, I, I can't, uh, I said, listen, we have to be so careful here, Paul, I said, because, you know, there are two other people, thrives, who we are, we are messing up here, we're wrecking. And he said, you're absolutely right. And he said, as I'm on this phone to you now, I'm gonna make a promise to you. He said, I am not gonna have another drink. And he said it in front of Michael Sloan was sitting there with him. I'm not gonna have another drink until the day I marry you. To which I said, well, and do you know, the willpower of this man, he put down that drink on that bar. I wasn't with him, Michael Sloan was. And he never had another drink until the day he married me. How long was that? And that was four years. 
That was wow. the 11th of July, 1987. Wow. So, uh, so that, that was, you know, the most amazing thing. And, and he stuck to it. I mean, he really did. I mean, he was, well, he just didn't drink for four years. And then the irony of it was, having lived together for four years, we did. I used to have an occasional drink. It didn't stop me drinking when I didn't drink. On the day of the wedding, he actually was given a glass of champagne because he drank the champagne and it tasted very, because we don't drink for ages. Alcohol tastes quite bitter. Anyway, he had his champagne. We went off in the most lovely honeymoon. We did a honeymoon for about three or four weeks. He had it all planned and we went to Toronto and we went to America. We went to St. Lucia. We had a fantastic honeymoon. And in the middle of it all, we came back on the cruise ship and Daddy kept ordering this champagne, and I kept saying, "No, no, I, I really, I, no, I don't really fancy it. I feel a bit sick." And of course, the reason I was feeling sick and didn't know it was that I was pregnant with Laura Jane. <laughs> so <laughs> literally, we have worked it out that Laura Jane was born nine months to the day that we got married. We were wow. we married on the eleventh of July, wow. and she was born on the eleventh of April, nineteen eighty-eight. Wow. And I have to tell you, to this day, that is to me. The greatest, and, and, and to say, poor old daddy, though, he was waiting to have a drink, he'd been waiting for four years to have a drink, and couldn't even have a partner to drink because I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic, yeah. So, you and daddy have been together now for 30, how many years now? Oh, we've been married for 35 years. Are we married in, yeah, 35 years 35 this year. Years. Wow. That's incredible. And obviously in the process, you've had two fantastic children. We have, and Robin, who of course was in the middle of all this with houses, and we did fall out a little bit, but that all sort of worked its, itself out, yeah. Um, yeah. which is a story. He's, he's more, he was always like a brother more to you than anything. Well, this is the thing. I'd known Robin for years. He was more like a brother than a boyfriend. We had just a few raucous years. He was always there. You know, it's always I had... a classic, always when I try and explain this situation to everyone, Robin's one of Dad's closest friends, which is, um, which is which is but, lovely. But it is ironic because all the years I lived with Robin, I mean, he would always there, be there in the background. So whatever boyfriends I had, I um, sort of broke up and I got upset about them. I mean, there was Robin always there to, to mop up the tears and go out and have a good time. And I ended up having such a good time with Robin. I thought, why am I breaking my heart with all these other people? I have a laugh with Robin. And Robin and I were together for seven years. Mm. So when we did get back to when Daddy and Robin did bury the hatchet sort of thing, um, you know, he's, he's always been a good mate. And of course, I, wanted, I made him Laura Jane's godfather. Yeah, so he's actually lovely. Laura Jane's godfather, and he's, he's sort of part of the family now, as you well know, because he's always with us, isn't he? Yeah. So, but you're quite right, nobody does understand that. Everyone seems yeah. to think that. <laughs> it is very weird from the outset. I know um, it is. My mates, the it, my, mate, my mates find it absolutely hysterical. That, I know they do. There's a strange, um, long-haired man in short shorts walking around the house. Oh, I know. Um, who used to be your ex-boyfriend, and that's not and that's not where to be seen. But for me and LJ, it's completely normal. But I mean, from the outside, yes, it is for everybody else. <laughs> especially when all the neighbours are like, when Dad goes away, he rocks up. But he's a he's never Paul goes away and does something in Canada. Robin seems to appear. That's mm. always a big joke. But he's but he's such a character, he and he certainly he's, is. He's my part, God, he is part of the family. Um, I mean. It, I want to talk a little bit about being a mother. I mean, not something that I'm ever going to have to have the pleasure of. Obviously, being a mother is very different to being a father, I suppose, in, in many ways. But did you ever really, did you always want to be a mother? Um, no. No, I did not. Not interested at all. I was so, out of all my so, friends. I was one of the last to have children. And I have to say, when I did fall pregnant, um, it, it, it sort of, not didn't come as a shock to me because we sort of, angled in that direction but daddy always said oh, we don't have kids it won't make any difference we're happy the way we are and when I fell pregnant I was doing Rum for Your Wife in the West End which is a play I've been in and out of for some years it was a brilliant play by Ray Cooney they changed the cast every three months all these wonderful only eight people in the cast but changing cast every three months on the West End stage is not an easy task for mm. Paul Elliott or Ray Cooney but they did it but anyway I was still doing Rum for Your Wife and all I kept thinking was well you know how long can I do this to before I show a bump and then can I, how quickly can I get back to work? I mean, literally, I did a pantomime when I was five months pregnant in Cambridge. And because I showed so little, I mean, when I first became pregnant, I phoned my doctor then and said, you know, can I do pantomime? And he said, well, as long as you don't have a scene in it where you're water skiing, where you're likely to, <laughs> said, what? <laughs> he said, well, that could be quite dangerous if you don't be. He said, but no, he said, there's, as long as you're feeling up to it, you're five months pregnant, then, you know, there's no reason you shouldn't do it. 
And I did, I played Prince Charming. And because I carried so small, nobody knew I was pregnant, which was, you know, quite unbelievable. So I did carry on with pantomime and then Laura Jane was born in the April, but really right up to the time I had Laura Jane, all I could think of was I wanted to get back to work. But from the minute- That's so interesting. From the minute I had uh, my little girl, from the minute she popped out, I just, something changed in me. The key clicked. And for me, the most important thing, you know, what was my just a, just a complete mindset shift. You went from absolutely, and I was thirty. From, I was thirty-five yeah. then. You see, so I, I was quite late to have children. Well, not really these days. Everybody, my my, my mother had me at thirty-six, so she was quite mm. late. And when I had you, I was thirty-nine. Mm. So it is reasonably late to have kids. But I, for me, I thought it was the best way around because I had lots of fun before. And that so just I, changed every single decision you made in oh, your yes. personal state for the rest of your oh, life. Yes. Really. Yeah, absolutely. I remember once when I was, um, Lord Jane wasn't well and I was doing, I was, went back to run for you, I went back to work and I was doing run for your wife and she really wasn't well. I, I, anyway, I had a, somebody helping me, she was very good, Sonia, and she, you know, she was a sort of living nanny and she was also a nurse actually, but there was just something I just didn't. And I, I suddenly thought, you know what, I, I don't need to be on stage, I'd rather be my daughter. As it happened, it, it, she, she, it was all right, because I, I, I'd left it to that, I did manage to go on stage, but that thought going through my mind, that the choice between my daughter and the stage, I suddenly thought, you know what? My priorities have changed here. And that was absolutely what, what made me realize that being a mother was, for me, one of the most important things ever in the world. Amazing. So, yeah. Um, and of course, you, which I've always find funny now, because there's not been many mothers on the planet that have been more dedicated to their sons, I can tell you that now. But you didn't even want me to begin with. No, I was no, I was quite happy just to have <laughs> I was quite happy just to have one child. And I always wanted a girl. I didn't want a boy. I did not want a boy. Um, for reasons I won't say. Um, but um <laughs> but you know what now. Um I, I have to say that it was my it was Nanny, yet again, who had been an only child. Sybil had also only had one child, she'd only had Paul, she never ever wanted any. And Sybil said to me, Oh no, 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 one's enough, you were but it was Nanny who said to me, don't let Laura Jane be an only child. Try and have another one. Make, see if you can have another one. Because believe you me, I would, I, I would, I hated being an only child, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And that mm. was your nanny. So, mm. Paul said, "Well, come on, let's go for another one." And you took a little bit longer to arrive. We have been trying for you for quite a time, <laughs> about a couple of yeah. years actually. Yeah. Um, so, and and all the way through that, I kept thinking, oh, I mustn't have. I do not want a boy. I want a girl. And Paul was saying, "Look, you know what?" I don't think I want a girl. I, I've got my beautiful daughter. I can never match her. I, you know, and I said, no, no. He said, well, you're not going to have much choice either way, whatever it is. And right up to the end, I thought you were a girl because everything was so similar. Everything, the way I felt, how I felt sick, how I did this, how I did everything was similar, apart from the fact I got swollen ankles. Mm. Um, and I do remember you were due in August. And, <clears throat> and this must have been July the 25th. I decided to clean the windows in the Muse house we were living in, and I was pretty, you know, heavy by then, and there I am, leaning out and cleaning windows and all the rest of it. And I remember Daddy coming home and saying, what the hell are you doing now? And I was cleaning windows. And I suddenly <laughs> thought, this little thing inside me thought, if I don't fucking get out of here now, for God's sake, I'm not going to have any jobs. And that's why you were early. I think you'd had enough. <laughs> <laughs> and you were born, and, I, and that Daddy was due to go to Canada with Laura Jane that next day. He was taking... Uh, Laura Jane with him, they were going off a trip and he thought, oh, I'll give you a little bit of a break to LJ. And then my waters broke that night and they had to cancel the trip for a few days. And there you suddenly arrived on the Sunday, three hours you took to come up and came out. And I, right to the end, I thought it was a little girl. And um, Daddy remembers walking into the hospital and hearing me saying, oh my God, I've done it for him, it's a boy. And it was, mm. and because I suddenly, when you heard you're a little boy, I realised it's what Daddy wanted. And so he heard that that shout as I came down the corridor and Laura Jane was the one who bathed you and she saw you literally as you'd just come out. So she's closer to you than most people, as I'm sure she'll tell you. She's definitely see through all my bullshit, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, you know, and, you know that, that, that was when our special foursome came together and, you know, me and Elgin talk about it often, but we're so extremely fortunate and, and grateful for for the special family that we have. Oh my God, like you can pick holes and 
your life so easily but you know that's the one thing it always returns to is that we've got this incredible family that's just so so special when we're it's together. a strong bond and it is important it is. A, 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 if you've got a strong family behind you i, I had that as well although mine was dissipated quite early because i lost my dad but if you've got a strong family bond it is mm. it is it, it's very good it's your backbone it's your backbone mm. and i know i always find I, I always find it so funny that like obviously there's no one there's not many people on this planet i respect more than my sister um i have many she has many qualities that i wish i had for sure but it's a very true statement when we say we're extremely well we're extremely different you kind of always want what you you kind of don't have i suppose um but it's what i've always find funny is how you worry so much about me yeah and dad always worries so much about her yeah, it's interesting. Um, and, I, and I find that so interesting. And the only thing I can really put that down to is when I look at the, the a lot of the qualities that both you and Dad have, and what me and LJ have, is that I have a lot of your eccentric qualities. Yeah. And LJ has got so many of Dad's sort of organised and reserved qualities that are so great. Um, and I just find it funny how one parent worries about one of their offspring more than. The other, like dad, literally couldn't, doesn't have a single worry about me at all, and he never has. <laughs> he even through, that's funny, isn't it? Even through the ups and downs that I've had, he's never worried at all. Um, and you don't have the slightest worry about LJ at all whatsoever. So um, I just find I find that so funny, and, and I just kind of wonder sometimes. I think about the psychology behind that and why. Well, that I is think and, it's because if you recognise in you quite like saying character. I mean, for me. <clears throat> and Laura Jane has a few of my qualities. Of course, she does that. Well, of course, I've got, a few, I've got a few dads as well. Oh, you certainly have. You certainly have. I mean, you know, you love an audience and you're fantastic. And I mean, Laura Jane's fantastic in front of an audience. But Laura Jane, <clears throat> she used to always at school, they gave her the things to read. She has a, a lovely voice and, 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 and very positive. Ele she's ele very elegant. Good, yeah, she's a very good speaker, Laura Jane, because whereas you... Uh, you wouldn't need a script, and Laura Jane's the first to admit this, you don't need a script because you're an, an instinctive performer, and you are a mm. performer. There's no question about it. And I, my favourite story with you is with Daddy when he, you were at Halebury, <clears throat> and you went to, you did drama. And I remember when you did drama, Daddy said, what? Because he never wanted either of you to be in the business. <clears throat> and Daddy said, what the hell is Hayden doing drama for? And I said, well, it was something, <laughs> I, I can't remember why it was. You picked something or something, and the drama was the, anyway. We did it, and the first drama lady mistress you had, she was great. And we were asked to the house and all the rest of it, and you know, and, and you you obviously quite good at it from the beginning. But then in year five, you did um, uh, um, what was it? All, uh, all a few good men, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and you played the Tom Cruise part. And I remember Daddy saying, "What?" Well, I remember taking Daddy to say, "Well, we both went to see it," and he sat there and he went, "Oh my God!" He said, "He's rather good, isn't he?" And I remember afterwards, he came out and he said, oh, you were, you were very good. He said, you, 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 do you want to go to stage school? Or and you, you, what did you turn around and say? Not, not like that. Couldn't earn any money being an actor. So I, you know, I always remember you dissing that yeah. because you didn't think you could earn any money. I mean, it was the lovely total shock on Daddy's face. And he said, no, he's actually rather good. And indeed, you won, <laughs> you won, the, you won the prize that year for, your, for the drama of the whole school. I remember that. Yeah, I can't remember but, it now. But, uh... But you are, um, no, no, I mean, you, you, so you, but I do know, I do recognise a lot of the things that you have, your qualities, I don't mean qualities, I mean characteristics that you have, that I have, um, some of the ones I'd rather you didn't have, I mean, you know, you, <laughs> when you, when you get your head down sometimes, <laughs> yeah. when you get your head down sometimes, it takes you a little while to get get it up you know what i mean yeah um so but just just those few characteristics but you you know you, you come through but um and i'm sure there are a few that uh you certainly have quite a lot of your dads yeah, yeah you have, yeah, you have yeah. the good ones you have the good ones of your dad and the bad ones of me <laughs> i know no it's true uh well look i mean there's just two questions i really want to sort of finish this off with and and like i will say it again like you quite literally i, I don't know how you deal with us sometimes like honestly like when anyone ever asks me i always say that dad's my hero but without you none of it would be possible because you keep him together you keep us all together in the most selfless manner yeah. i i don't i like i've had to look after myself during this coronavirus completely and utterly 
for nine weeks now and like there are things everywhere that I see that I just never even thought of before like not just in terms of the house just in terms of like emotionally keeping us all together mm. that you that you do that are just we've I, I don't I've never taken it for granted I don't say that but it's just something you, you didn't you, you didn't really you haven't appreciated it and I don't mean that no no no, no 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 not even appreciated it it's just like you just don't realize the stuff that you do for this family so I mean one a couple of just questions to, to finish on in regards to people because a lot of this people that listen to this show which I've actually been able to see recently which is quite interesting the the key demographic of this show is 26 to 31 but 68 percent of it is women so from your side what do you think is like the number one thing um that one piece of advice you would have for 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 having a long and successful and happy marriage and then the other one would be what's the number one thing you would uh about piece of advice you would give on to somebody who's going to have their first to have their first child as a, as a mother really yeah what's your first, what's your what's your number one uh piece of motherly advice that's an interesting so one. Ma um, so marriage one first yeah well the marriage one i think the marriage one um it's you know it, it's it's more by luck than judgment it's just when you're with someone i think it's nice to be able to keep your independence to a certain degree and i don't mean by that financially i mean um the things with danny in my relationship and it has been all the way through is he's always been a very busy man um and indeed i've worked at the beginning as well so you've got your own in a way your own identities but you you you're not in each other's pockets all the time and i think that's mm. great with any relationship mm. um that you don't always have to be with each other all the time i know a lot of people say oh you know you're ready to send your glue you don't need that you don't need that um and and i think the more you do that and actually if you have children that helps you that because you're also spreading it so it's not just home to two people which can become mm. suffocating you've got yeah. other avenues spheres that you do um use your emotions on as for being a, so that's what i would recommend with marriage and if, if it happens that, that's great you know that you can keep a, a, a slight separation and i think it's important for any relationship not just a marriage i don't think people should always just say suffocate each other but as for being a mother um I, again i i just think it's something that you actually feel and you you find most women walks of life um you know when, when they become a mother things do change um even if it's a slight change and and things and you carry on as normal and it's something that's in there so it's, 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 it's an inherent thing it's an instinctive thing I mean, there are some people who are mothers who, when they've had children, don't really want to be a mother. And that does happen. I mean, there's plenty of people out there. But if you're lucky enough to be able to embrace what your children give you and, 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 the, and the satisfaction and enjoyment, and I've been terribly lucky with both of you. I mean, you've given me so much. I mean, all the sport thing. I mean, Daddy, Daddy could, that's the thing. Daddy could never be there for all your sporting activities when you're younger because he was always away or working, whereas most of the time I could be, which was lovely. Like and the rugby, same with every, every, everyone rugby yeah. cricket football yeah and 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 the same with laura jane i could be there not that laura jane was as sporty as you were but that i could but i've enjoyed so many of the of the things that she's done and embraced and i've enjoyed my life through you because i've enjoyed what you've done and the pleasure you've given me yeah. um but i hope and i don't think i have by the sound of what you said that i have actually been overbearing about it so that neither of you can get out of it and, and be your own person and not be with us all the time but because we have a strong bond we all come down i mean we will often have sunday lunch all of us together and and roy jane's lovely boyfriend john you know we always we're all a family and i think that's important but i think to, to give you you can't tell someone how to be a mother you've got to feel it they've got yeah. to feel it they've got to want it although i didn't as i said until roy jane i had roy jane but it's it's just something that's instinctive so it's i mean different people have different ways of bringing children up but i think we've been pretty open pretty liberal i hate that word liberal but you know what i mean i mean we've always yeah, been pretty open about things and yeah you know, and i think that's good i think that's good i mean dads are always more protective over daughters than they are over sons so you know mm. laura jane going out on the, on the tiles one night would worry daddy wouldn't worry you with you at all because you're one of the chaps you know you're a fella yeah. But, but that's what I would say about being a mother. It's yeah. an instinct. It's something you, you, you inherently feel when you have a child. Until you have a child, you don't know that. 
Well, from both myself and LJ, who's actually also sitting on this Zoom call, because whenever you're listening to this, we're doing it in the middle of the coronavirus, and it's been it's been one of the hardest parts of it actually has been not being able to have contact with you and dad, I must say. Um, however, like, like LJ actually said the other day, the fact that we've managed, I felt like I haven't actually spoken to you guys as much as we have as a group collectively in a long time. So in that way, we've actually connected very, very well during this time. It's, it's been yeah. still been difficult. Um, but yeah, from, from both of us sitting here, I just want to say, you really have been the most spectacular mother in oh, so many God. ways. And, and I actually do think um, this has been quite a dialed down version just because I don't want to get in trouble with anyone listening. Um, you are truly the most hysterical character on this planet. Um, and I'm actually quite proud of you that you kept a lid on it in many ways during this hour. Um, but I just want to say I love you so much. And you've done everything you've done for me. I mean, obviously, I know LJ as well, but I know for me, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have, be anywhere close to, to where I am right now. Not that I'm anywhere close to where I think I will be, but where I am right now, it wouldn't be, have happened if it wasn't for you. And of, of course, Dad, so I just want to say I love you and thank you for being you. It has been an absolute pleasure, my darling. Love you, <laughs> Absolute pleasure. All right. Big, I love you. I love I'm you. Dying to see you. I'm dying to see you. <laughs> <laughs> right, look after Daddy, look after you, Daddy. Yeah.